0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book 11, chapter 18, what do you think Pierre is up to and why do he want a pistol? Twisted everyone every way says, "Ah, uh, well, now we know why Pierre was acting so funny when he met Natasha, sort of, I have to admit my first thought was that Pierre is going to commit suicide. He talked in the beginning of the chapter as if everything was hopeless, he feels lost. There is no right or wrong, etc. Hopefully I'm wrong. Kara Kikar says, Is Pierre still harbouring delusions that his destiny is wrapped up with Napoleon? I'm worried Pierre is going to attempt a very misguided assassination. Ripster 66 says, I haven't a clue what Pierre is up to, and I feel like Tolstoy has not given much insight into Pierre's mindset to really have a good guess. He's acting a bit shell-shocked. Yeah, I reckon that's um, probably at the core of it. He's a bit shell-shocked, and he has recently learned... That Andre died, right? Even though we know otherwise, he doesn't. He still thinks Andre's dead, so he's probably quite shocked at that as well. Nevertheless, it's never good when someone wants a gun. You know, it just mm, you know they're not. They don't want it for a good idea. <laughs> no one's ever wanted a gun for a good idea. Uh you could argue. Chapter 19, though, of the book goes like this. I'm going to go straight into it because it's a bit of a long chapter. So here we go. Kutuzov's order to retreat through Moscow to the Ryazan Road was issued at night on the 1st of September. The first troops started at once, and during the night they marched slowly and steadily without hurry. At daybreak, however, they those nearing the town at the Dorogomilov Bridge saw ahead of them masses of soldiers crowding on hurrying and hurrying across the bridge, ascending on the opposite side and blocking the streets and alleys, while endless masses of troops were bearing down on them from behind, and the unreasoning hurry and alarm overcame them. They all rushed forward to the bridge, onto it, and to the fords and boats. Kutuzov himself had driven round by side streets to the other side of Moscow. By 10 o'clock in the morning of the 2nd of September, only the rearguard remained in the Dogoromirlov suburb, where they had ample room, the main army was on the side, other side of Moscow, or beyond it. At that very time, at ten in the morning of the 2nd of September, Napoleon was standing among his troops on the Pokloni Hill, looking at the panorama spread out before him from the 26th of August to the 2nd of September, that is, from the Battle of Borodino to the entry of the French into Moscow. During the whole of that agitating memorable week, there had been the extraordinary autumn weather that always comes as a surprise when the sun hangs low and gives more heat than in spring. When everything shines so brightly in the rare, clear atmosphere that the eyes smart, when the lungs are strengthened and refreshed by inhaling the aromatic autumn air. When even the nights are warm, and when in those dark warm nights golden stars startle and delight us continually by falling from the sky. At ten in the morning on the 2nd of September this weather still held. The brightness of the morning was magical. Moscow, seen from the Poklonny hill, lay spaciously spread out with her river, her gardens and her churches, and she seemed to be living her usual life, her coppolas glittering like stars in the sunlight. The view of the strange city with its peculiar architecture such as he had never seen before filled Napoleon with the rather envious and uneasy curiosity men feel when they see an alien form of life that has no knowledge of them. This city was evidently living with the full force of its own life. By the indefinite signs which, even at a distance, distinguish a living body from a dead one, Napoleon from Poklony Hill perceived the throb of life in the town and felt, as it were, the breathtaking, sorry, the breathing of that great and beautiful body. Every Russian looking at Moscow feels her to be a mother. Every foreigner who sees her, even if ignorant of her significances as the mother city, must feel her feminine character, and Napoleon felt it. Seville. I was going to read the English translation. That Asiatic city of the innumerable churches, holy Moscow. Here it is. Then at last that famous city. It was high time, said he, and dismounting, the, he ordered a plan of Moscow to be spread out before him and summoned Le Lorne de Ieville, the interpreter. A town captured by the enemy is like a maid who has lost her honour, thought he. He had said so to Tukov at Smolensk. From that point of view, he gla- he gazed at the Oriental beauty he had not seen before. It seemed strange to him that his long-felt wish, which had seemed unattainable, had at last been realized. In the clear morning light, he gazed now at the city and now at the plan, considering its details and the assurance of possessing it, agitated and awed him. But could it be otherwise? He thought. Here is this capital at my feet. Where is Alexander now, and of what is he thinking? A strange, beautiful, and majestic city, and a strange and magic, majestic moment. In what light must I appear to them, thought he, thinking of his troops. Here she is, the reward for all those faint-hearted men. He reflected, glancing at those near him, and at the troops who were approaching and forming up. One word from me, one movement of my hand, and that ancient capital of the Tsars would perish. But my clemency is always ready to descend upon the vanquished. I must be magnanimous and truly great, but no, it can't be true that I am in Moscow, he suddenly thought. Yet here she is, lying at my feet, with her golden domes and crosses scintillating and twinkling in the sunshine. But I shall spare her. On the ancient monuments of barbarism and despotism, I will inscribe great words of justice and mercy. It is just this which Alexander will feel most painfully. I know him. It seemed to Napoleon that the chief import of what was taking place lay in the personal struggle between himself and Alexander. From the height of the Kremlin, yes, there is the Kremlin, yes, I will give them just laws. I will teach them the meaning of true civilization. I will make generations of boyars remember their conqueror with love. I will tell the deputation that it did not and do not desire war and that I have waged war only against the false policy of their court, that I love and respect Alexander, and that in Moscow I will accept terms of peace worthy of myself and my people. I do not wish to utilize the fortunes of war to humiliate an honored monarch. Boyars, I will say to them, I do not desire a war. I desire the peace and welfare of all my subjects. However, I know their presence will inspire me, and I shall speak to them "'as I always do, clearly, impressively, and majestically. "'But can it be true that I am in Moscow? "'Yes, there she is. "'Bring the boyars to me,' said he to his suite. "'A general with a brilliant suite galloped off at once to fetch the boyars. Two hours passed. "'Napoleon had lunched and was again standing in the same place on the poklony Hill "'awaiting the deputation.' His speech to the boyars had already taken definite shape in his imagination that speech was full of dignity and greatness as Napoleon understood it he himself carried away by the tone of magnanimity and sorry he himself carried away by the tone of magnanimity he intended to adopt towards moscow in his imagination he appointed days for assemblies at the palace of the tsars at which russian notables and his own would mingle he mentally appointed a governor one who would win the hearts of the people Having learned that there were many charitable institutions in Moscow, he mentally decided that he would for shower favours on them all. He thought that, as in Africa he had to put on a burn noose and sit in a mosque, so in Moscow he must be beneficent, like the Tsars, and in order finally to touch the hearts of the Russians, and being, like all Frenchmen, unable to imagine anything sentimental without a reference to my dear, my tender, my poor mother, he decided that his that he would place an inscription on all these establishments in large letters. This establishment is dedicated to my dear mother. Or no, it should simply be Maison de Marmia, house of my mother, he concluded. But am I really in Moscow? Yes, here it lies before me. But why is the deputation from the city so long in appearing, he wondered. Meanwhile, an agitated consultation was being carried on in whispers among his generals and marshals at the rear of his suite. Those sent to fetch the deputation had returned with the news that Moscow was empty, that everyone had left it. The faces of those who were not conferring together were pale and perturbed. They were not alarmed by the fact that Moscow had been abandoned by its inhabitants, grave as that fact seemed, but by the question how to tell the emperor without putting him in the terrible position of appearing ridiculous that he had been awaiting the boyars so long in vain that there were drunken mobs left in Moscow but no one else. Some said that a deputation of some sort must be scraped together. Others disputed that opinion and maintained that the emperor should first be carefully and skillfully prepared and then told the truth. He will have to be told all the same, said some gentlemen in the suite, but gentlemen... The position was the more awkward because the emperor, meditating upon his magnanimous plans, was pacing patiently up and down before the outspread map, occasionally glancing along the road to Moscow from under his lifted hand with a bright and proud smile. But it's impossible, declared the gentlemen of the suite, shrugging their shoulders but not venturing to the utter to utter the implied word letter ridicule. At last the emperor, tired of futile expectations, his actors instinct suggesting to him that the sublime moment, having been too long drawn out, was beginning to lose its sublimity, gave a sign with his hand. A signal, sorry, a single report of a signaling gun followed and the troops who were already spread out on different sides of Moscow moved into the city through the Tver, Kaluga and Dorogomilov gates. Faster and faster, vying with one another, they moved at the double or at a trot. vanishing amid the clouds of dust they raised and making the air ring with a deafening roar of mingling shouts. Drawn on by the movement of his troops, Napoleon rode with them as far as the Dorogomolov gate, but there again stopped and dismounting from his horse paced for a long time by the Kamakolovsky rampart awaiting the deputation. All right, there's that chapter for you. Have your say on the subreddit. What's Napoleon up to? Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.